Hello and welcome to this very special Stages podcast mini-series. I'm your host, Peter Ayers. It's World Pride 2023 and the Queer Globe is converging on Sydney, Australia to celebrate diversity, inclusion, community and fabulousness. To mark this momentous event, the Stages podcast is saluting the cast of captivating drag divas and personalities who have been featured on the podcast during the past five seasons. They are artists who have appeared on national and global stages, thrilling audiences, making a difference, healing community and expressing unique and wondrous talents. We spotlight these episodes so you can savour a second listen or so you can sample the delights of these entertainers for the very first time. A diva a day for each day of World Pride. Hello, I'm Peter Ayers and you're listening to Stages. I started dressing up in drag at home at Christmas parties and birthday parties. Everything around me, I was like a sponge and I still am. Incredibly observant incredibly visual we're always because like i said i danced um you know from the age of five until i left france to go to the to the army take a, a script and you sort of reinterpret it you have to be so careful and then we decided on mitzi it was going to be mitzi mcguire or mitzi mayhem i used to choreograph the drag shows for the drag queens so i got to know them lo and behold the next morning when I wake up, here's my face on the Daily News. <laughs> and to this day, people go, oh, Bob Down, oh. And there were these dance steps called shoe the ducks and dry your nails. And I sat there for weeks learning how to do my face. Get me on a microphone, half pissed and just like in a room full of people that were halfway there themselves. And then I remember when I was five, I wanted to go to this party as a fairy. I have to be able to put as much of my soul into it as possible. Lee Gordon named me Carlotta. Lee Gordon was a big promoter who actually started the drag queen shows off in Australia. I'd do it all again in a heartbeat, but I'd do it a little bit different next time, I think. I'd be, I would be more prepared than what I was. I think mean, I was just someone from the suburbs that went to King's Cross. Trevor Ashley follows in a long line of Australian stage larrikins that include Roy Reen, Mo McCackie, Barry Humphreys, Dame Edna, Gary MacDonald, Norman Gunston, and Reg Livermore, Betty Blockbuster. These performers have created characters who have celebrated the outrageous and all that is particular about our culture. Trevor Ashley continues this biting and hysterical piss-take, serving it up in flamboyant and finely realised entertainments, such as Fat Swan, Little Orphan Trashley, Body Bag and The Lion Queen. Alongside these naughty pantos, Ashley has enjoyed worldwide success with his one-man shows Liza on an E, Liza's Back is Broken and Diamonds Are for Trevor. In December 2022, he completed a triumphant addition to his panto series, Moulin Scrooge, and can be presently found on stage as Pharaoh in Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. He is all kinds of wonderful, flamboyant, fabulous, loud, lewd, colourful and camp. This conversation took place in June 2022. 
And would you please welcome the divine Mr. Trevor Ashley. Yay. Oh, how about Thanks, that? You get a staircase. I get a staircase. <laughs> Hello, Dolly, finally. Thank you. Oh, thanks, Pete. It's lovely to see you. Lovely to see you. Thank you for stepping in. Of course. Uh, poor old Declan, uh, COVID. Yes, I still haven't had it. I don't know how. I've done everything wrong. <laughs> so I'm sure that I should have by now, but still evaded me somehow. Touch wood. Um, it, it's a bitch though, isn't it, COVID? Uh, mm. it's, it's decimated the performing arts industry over, well, many industries, of course, but... Uh, Performers and creatives have really felt it hard over the last two years. How's it impacted you? Look, I can't say it was great. It was, it was a very difficult time. I think uh, certainly I'd, I'd produced a couple of things rolling right into March. Of So I'd done a big show in December of The Lion Queen, uh, toured with Conchita Verst in February, and sales were down. All of us were talking about it at the time, but sales were really down across the board. And so I'd lost a considerable amount of money. We thought, oh, I've got so much coming up, it'll all be fine. And then, of course, COVID hit and we were all like, oh, God, now what do I do? That's an absolute nightmare. Now I really don't know what to do. So it was quite a stressful... Um, Certainly at the beginning when it was so uncertain and when none of us knew whether there was going to be any kind of government support whatsoever, uh, it really was terrifying. And, you know, I live alone and I'm single, so I was sitting on my couch getting more and more, you know, terrified as the weeks went on. But, um, you know, we made it through somehow and now it's busier than ever, which is wonderful. Yeah. Um, do you remember that time as Mother Bear? I do, I do remember that time as Mother Bear. You'd say, Heidi, hi, hi. My washing hi. is dry. Yes, indeed. Oh, dear. <laughs> Very funny. Very funny indeed. Um, so, uh, look, uh, tapping into the vivid themes of ideas, we're going to swap a few ideas yes. this evening. Uh, lights. What lights up your life? Do you know what? I think just connection with other people. Yeah. I think that was why the last two years was really hard too. Yeah, because you're very gregarious, aren't you? Well, I, I look, and I'm very social and I do a lot of things and yeah. I'm out every night and uh, I think, yeah, that the connection with other people and I think that certainly um, being down at on the harbour and just uh, across the whole festival, actually, and I've got a lots of events from the talks to music to uh, to seeing all of the incredible installations. Um, it has really brought people together again, and after such a long time where I think people were so fearful, it's just been the most yep. incredibly uplifting experience the last few weeks here in Sydney. It, it's, we've all felt how amazing it is that you go out on a Wednesday night and everyone's everywhere yeah, and it was yeah. just, it's been fabulous. Yeah, yeah. So are, are you not good with your own company? Oh, I mean, I'm fine. <laughs> no, I'm fine. I just get bored. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah. mean, I, look, to be honest, a lot of it's because in the daytime I am... I'm doing all the prep work, I'm doing all of the producing and, and booking the things and I am alone at home doing yeah, that. Yeah. So I guess I feel like in the evenings I want to see people and I want to actually be somewhere for real rather than just in my apartment. Yeah. What about music? Is there a music which inspires you or which is your solace that you, you turn to for uh, rejuvenation? You know, it's funny, I was thinking about this. At the... Um, Music, I, I sort of use different styles of music and different artists for different things. 
So certainly if I want inspiration, I tend to go to, you know, my divas, the ones that I have always loved and to listen to. Usually a live album is my favourite to always listen to. Somebody performing live is always a big inspiration. But then if I want to, like, really, you know, relax, I listen to a lot of jazz um, and Emma Pask is one of my favourite jazz singers, even though she's a dear friend. She's, like, one of my favourite singers and, and uh, Anne Hampton Calloway and Jamie Cullum. I love all of those. You artists. introduced me to Shirley Horn. Oh, yeah, I love Shirley Horn. Who is just extraordinary. Yeah. Shirley Horn, ladies and gentlemen, if you don't know her, yep. look her up. Yeah. Look her up. Brilliant, brilliant. Um, we, of course, have had a conversation before on stages, but it was in the very infant years of the podcast. I think you were episode four. I was episode four. Yeah, so that's a long time ago. <laughs> that is certainly. Considering, you know, around the corner is episode 300. Yes, it's um, a long time between yeah, yeah. pandemics. Oh, thank you. Thank you very yes. much. Um, that was 2018, of course. Mm. And I remember something which really stands out for me in that conversation is you told me that you feared that the industry thought you was a bit of a joke. Mm. Has it changed? Are you more comfortable now? I don't know. I think sort of. I think it's it's a mix. I, I don't know. Maybe slightly less. Um, I, I just think because of the way I started, that's where it's a... Uh, because I started as really as a drag queen in pubs, um, I think that... Starting that way was hard to then overcome people's prejudices yeah. of what they thought that should be yeah. and what and how far I could go. But you I certainly th- have overcome that with roles like Tenardier in Les Miserables, yeah. in which you were the complete opposite, a sleazy old man. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> and it was great. And, I mean, look, I credit all of that with uh, Cameron McIntosh because he came to see me do Little Orphan Trashly and he thought I was hilarious and said, he's my Tenardier. Now, I don't know what about me as a little orphan with a red wig on um, <laughs> made him think, oh, there's that dirty old man. But it, it was great. He was, he was absolutely right and I had the best time playing him for 500 shows. Divas have featured a lot in your adult life and performance. Mm. Who were the divas who featured in your childhood that, that had a big impact and informed you? Julie Andrews. Right. Because, of course, we saw The Sound of Music and saw um, Mary Poppins. Yes. And so Julie Andrews was like... On repeat. Everybody had it on repeat. So I think being, you know, there and, uh, and seeing her, that was, that was my sort of first that I sort of became aware of. And then Barbara Streisand because my mother loved Barbara. So we had a lot of Babs records around the house. And I think one of the, one of the early records that Mum had bought that I listened to a lot uh, was the Wet album, Barbara's Wet album, which includes Enough is Enough. So um, with, I, uh, with Donna, Donna Summer. Summer right? So, I mean, there's camp. I yeah, mean, what was, yeah. I, was, I was fucked. It was always <laughs> going to be. <laughs> so, yeah, but that's who I fell in love with and so I'd listen to that. And my father loved Tina Turner. Right. And so I did an interview... Uh, when I was five on Good Morning Australia and they um, I, they were at Shopfront Theatre. I was doing youth theatre at, at Shopfront in Carlton and I um, they came and sort of interviewed all these young actors and they said to me, who's your favourite Australian? And I said, Tina Turner. <laughs> and they said, is she Australian? I was like... I had no idea. It never occurred to me that she wasn't. Well, she was in Mad Max Beyond Thunder. Well, I just I didn't have not seen that. I just yeah. had the album, so <laughs> I thought she was Australian. And uh, they said, "Why do you like her?" And I said, "I like her songs." 
I said, what's your favourite? I said, what's love got to do with it? And that was a, as a five-year-old. And then who, unbeknownst to me, 21 years later, I'd be singing that song eight shows a week in Priscilla, Queen of the Desert. As Misunderstanding, as misunderstanding. in the, the first big drag number in the mm. show. Yeah, yeah. Exciting. So it's kind of a weird little... You know, well, no. life's like that, isn't it? It's full of all sorts of happy accidents and serendipity. Well, you, the more I do these conversations with people, the more I see how it's all very much interconnected. Yeah. yeah. And I think, too, because my, my interests haven't really changed. And that's the craziest thing. I think it's when, when I was in high school and people were talking to me about what they wanted to do when they grew up and nobody really knew and they were so, you know, nervous about that. Um, and I was the complete opposite who, from uh, as long as I could remember, I, I knew I wanted to be in the theatre and I knew I wanted to be a performer. And so I think, you know, it's funny that that hasn't... has been a complete constant in my life. Were you as flamboyant and gregarious as a, as a child as you were? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, we yeah, were pretty full on. You, you went to an all-boys all high school. I did. Was that tough? Uh, look, it was at the very beginning. I was I was teased because I sang a number at um, at high school. I sang Stormy Weather at high school. And so from then on I became known as Stormy Trevor. So <laughs> every time. And so they would all tease me and bully me on the bus and everything. Um, it was a funny school because it was a selective high school, still is, uh, and... You know, very smart people, but uh, most people who would go to that school went there for engineering, went there for, you know, it was very smart subjects and drama wasn't even offered. Right. I had to get it put on the school syllabus. syllabus. Right. So I did, myself and my friend Leonardo Nam, and Leo is now like, he lives in Hollywood and he, he's in Westworld and in all these amazing Sisterhood of the Travelling Pants, he's in all these great things. And we were best mates in high school and we convinced them to give us a year 11, 12 drama class. So there were like six of us in the class and we, um, and everything else was like three unit maths and eight unit econo uh, economics and physics and, oh, it was all just hideous. So I did art and music and drama. Of course, of course. Mm. Um, and from all accounts too, you had a very supportive family who took yeah. you to a lot of theatre, yeah. music theatre especially, and so much so that you would often go backstage. Well, yeah, I mean, my favourite favourite backstage story is that um, I had my mother had taken me to see Cats when I was five. And uh, I fell in love with Debbie Byrne. So we, uh, we had the record, the Australian cast recording of Cats. I just fell in love with Deb Byrne. And then when she was starring in Les Mis, um, my mother wrote her a letter and said, look, my son's obsessed with you. Would you... <laughs> Would you take it an AVO? It's his 10th <laughs> birthday. Um, would you be able to sign his program or something after the show? And unbeknownst to mum, she had read it and then she called. She called the house and said, is that Alana? She said, hi, it's Debbie Byrne here. And mum's like, hello. She said, now, okay, I'm going to give you my dressing room phone number and the night that Trevor's coming to the show, you call me after the hour call and I, my, I'll answer or my dresser will answer and I'll take my call because, of course, no mobile phones then and I'll take the call in the dressing room and then you just remind me that he's in. So 
We, I get taken to the show for my birthday. My grandparents took me to Les Mis and at the end they said, come on, we're going backstage. I said, we can't do that. That's not, that's not right. That's not how you behave at a theatre. Um, but actually um, we got backstage and they said, oh, yes, they're waiting for you. And Deb Byrne had organised a whole cast to wait around and sing me happy wow. birthday oh, on the wow. stage. Wow. So I have this program um, from my birthday with everybody's signatures from the cast, which is so amazing. And um, I got to meet them all and I got to recount that story to Deb because she was at opening night of My Les Mis in 2015. Thank and she was like... Did I do that? <laughs> I was like, yeah. She said, wasn't I nice? I said, you were fantastic. But I said that really did for me. It was one of those things where it just made my love for it even more because if they were generous enough to do that for me, then I want to keep doing this. And this is, if I can get to be there, then. So I, I, I feel very... Um, feel very lucky that I've had a few of those. I had quite a lot of those experiences where they would come and meet me or, you know. You had some exceptional mentors as well yeah. uh, as a kid. I'm thinking of people like Tommy Tico yeah. and Rolf Harris. <laughs> he called me. <laughs> he did. He called me this one day. I performed at the Talent Development Project of which his brother was a patron. And so... I got home, picked up the phone one day. I was like, is Trevor there? And I went, yes, it's Trevor speaking. Hi, it's Ralph Harris here. I just wanted to call you and tell you were fabulous. Of course, we didn't know what, then what we know now. But anyway, it was still great. <laughs> I was excited <laughs> at the time. <laughs> I now do a joke with Rhonda Birchmore that I say, she says, have you ever had a famous phone call? I said, yes, I got called by Ralph Harris. She says, really? I said, yeah, well, I picked up the phone. All I could hear was, ooh, uh, ooh, uh, ooh, uh. At least I think it was Ralph Harris. Anyway, um, <laughs> <laughs> um, and Tommy Tico, the great mm. maestro, uh, how did you come under his wing? Um, I was very lucky. I'd gone to a performer and cabaret trainer perf uh, seminar in about 95, I think. And uh, basically Tommy, for those of you who don't know, was like a leading conductor and arranger and musical director and absolutely extraordinary. Um, so Tommy said... Uh, had, the, had this workshop and you could win a scholarship to work with him over the course of three days and at the end he would present several artists in, uh, in his... A showcase. Uh, in his showcase, mm. yeah. So Tommy, uh, I auditioned for and then I didn't get one. And I said, oh, I went up to him later in the week and said, oh, Mr Tico, I just wanted to ask why, what I could have done better... And he said, Trevor, you could have not have done anything better. I'm going to give you a different kind of um, scholarship. And so basically, Tommy uh, let me go over to his house every Wednesday afternoon after school and I'd go to Bellevue Hill and he'd teach me how to uh, arrange music. And so I was writing orchestrations for the uh, high school band um, when I was 15 and writing these out and Tommy would correct them. And so I'd go over and learn all about that. But then he'd play me, you know, these incredible... Because he was Peter Allen's musical director for years and years and years. So he was playing me these reel-to-reels of rehearsals with Peter Allen. And when he worked with Mel Torme and when he worked... With, and I just... I was just... The, 
the biggest, you know, lesson. And so when I first started going out and performing at the RSL clubs when I was 18 and I was starting at the very end of when you'd go and there'd be a band there every week and on a Friday there'd be a support act and a headliner and everyone was getting paid uh, without risk. Um, and I got to go there and um, Tommy had written all my charts and I was performing in the clubs with all these things that he'd given me and it was quite amazing. Yeah. It's a really very special... I think a lot of people don't realise just the extent of your skills. You know, to musically arrange is, is quite a skill, you know, and, and as a pianist and a accompanist and of yourself yeah. as well, um, you're not just a fabulous drag performer or yeah. a wonderful actor. Or I, I sort of... I mean, I guess that's because my, my interests are so broad and that's kind of one of the things I, I've loved about the industry is that I've been able to do all sorts of things. And, and for years, like, when I moved out of home, the thing that actually supported me, I was making backing tracks for people, doing their charts and, um, and uh, doing singing lessons and things. I taught at McDonald College for, yep. for years as a singing teacher. So it's quite funny, like, the things that I sort of did. And then it was literally while I was teaching um, at McDonald College that I started to do drag in the pubs and I was starting to call up the school in the morning after being at the Imperial <laughs> till three in the morning going, hi, um, I won't make it in today uh, just because you'd be so wrecked. And I said, I decided I can't do both. I'm either a singing teacher or I'm a drag queen. So, so how did drag start for you? I did my cabaret show in New York when I was 20 and I'd, I'd won a talent quest so I used the winnings for this talent quest to go to New York and stay there for two months and put on my own cabaret. So I did. And how old are you? I was 20. Right. I don't know how I had this confidence because I'd be <laughs> nervous about doing that now. So, um, but I went there and I spent all this money. I mean, it was so expensive because our dollar was 49 cents, like now. Yeah. Um, no, <laughs> no, but it was, it was really quite... Ridiculous, um, but I backed myself and went. Okay, I'm going to go. So I went up. I went to New York and did my show, and I got really good reviews. And my plan was to move there. I thought this is going to be perfect. I, okay, I'll go home, pack everything up, pack up my house, and and leave. And uh, September 11 happened, and everyone I wrote to there because that was. That was that year. I was 21, sorry. So, yeah, 21. Um, and so September 11 happened and everybody said to me, don't come. Don't come. This city's going to take years to heal from this. So I was like, oh, God, well, what do I do now? And I brought the same show that I'd done in New York back to Sydney and did it at Glen Street Theatre. At Sawley's? At Sawley's Cabaret. And... Uh, and Portia Turbo was in the audience. Right. And she said to me, have you ever thought about doing drag? And I said, not particularly. She said, I think you should. She said, none of us can sing and you can. And I think you'd be good at it. She went, you come down to the Albury on Tuesday nights and I'll teach you how to do your makeup." So I went down to the Albury not knowing anything and I sat there for weeks learning how to do my face. She never helped, never, like, she'd tell me I'm, you're doing it wrong, but she wouldn't actually do it for me. She said, the only way you learn is to do it yourself. So I 
did it myself. And one night she went into, there was this, if you'd ever been backstage at the Aubrey Hotel, there was this amazing, like, cage, which would have been probably originally for beer storage, you know, but they'd set up this whole big dressing room and then all these costumes. It was just, like, racks and racks of frocks. It was so amazing. And it was Aladdin's cave, you know. And so Portia walked in, grabbed a dress and said, right, you're on tonight, and so threw me on. And uh, then she said, right, now, now you're coming over to my house and we're going to sew you some frocks of your own. So she did and, uh, and then within probably a month I had four nights a week work. Right. It was crazy. It happened really fast. And then Mitzi McIntosh took me under her wing and I was at the Imperial for six years. So Portia Turbo was like your fairy drag mother. Yeah, she was. Yeah. She was my proper drag mother, right, yeah. Right, right. And that was why my original name was Cleopatra Coupe. That's what I worked under. And so I said, I want to be Alexis Carrington, like an Alexis Carrington sort of character. And she was like, no, you can't be Alexis Coupe. I do the car jokes. I said, okay. So, um, so I had to be Cleopatra Coupe. You, you had that natural instinct to connect with an audience. So I, I, bet, I suppose the rest was an education in how to design a frock, how to wear a frock, how to put on a face, how to... There was all of that, but I think what I learned the most was I'd done all this cabaret stuff and people had paid to come in, even if it was 10 bucks, they'd paid to come and see you. So they were a captive audience. So to suddenly be put in a pub and in a bar where you know, people would be more interested in drinking or anything else than watching you. It was figuring out how to capture their attention, how to make, you know, them uh, like you and, and actually watch and applaud. And um, I feel like Mitzi was always the master of that. She oh, always yeah. knew how to, yeah. how to do a comedy number and how to do a dramatic number and a dance number. She'd do everything. And um, I feel like... Uh, that that's what I learnt the most. I mean, apart from the, you know, how to wear a fake bra and you know who how to tuck me, and then tuck. No, that that I learnt fast, weirdly. Uh, really? <laughs> to the how? Uh, we don't need to go into the no. details, but I imagine that would be quite painful. No. Is it? No. It's, not, it's fine. Does it depend well, on size a, and... Oh, I don't know. Right, okay. You I know, only can tell from You've me. only tucked yourself. I've only tucked myself, right. exactly. So, right. no, I mean, I've never had a problem with it. Right. It's always been easy. Good. You just do it. We were, when, when we were doing Priscilla the Musical, there were two of us who had done drag before and everybody else was just a male music theatre performer. And uh, we were tucking... Frida and I were both tucking for the show. It was my first entrance. I was in a G-string and, and panties and a little corset and I was backstage at the club. So that was my first entrance. And um, so I wasn't going out there not tucked. And then all the boys had to wear leotards and all these things. None of them ever did it. We were always like, it looks weird. Don't, yeah. don't, you've got to do it. But no. But then we also played boys and girls and boys and girls throughout the show. So it, it, was, it was a commitment. Because once you tuck, it's there for... It's, that's it. Yeah. For the, the, for the, the show. Evening. Yeah, for the show. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I had all of my male pads when I played male roles. I had shoulder pads sewn into everything. <laughs> for a pop. Yeah, because I needed something. <laughs> I didn't want nothing. So like, that would look strange too. But that was easier than trying to tuck and untuck between sets. Yeah, yeah. Oh, wonderful, wonderful. The illusion of theatre. The illusion. So were you... Were you <laughs> that early drag, were you, were you lip syncing or singing live all the time? 
I always sang my spot numbers live. And then if I was in like a production show, because I did Rocky Horror with Mitzi and The Wizard of Oz and Sound of Music and all those sort of legendary Thursday night musicals we used to do, um, I would mime in the production shows. And I'd mime, usually they'd give me one song, I'd sing a number. So I used to sing science fiction double feature at the beginning of Rocky Horror and then mime. Right. The rest of the night, but it was. I never wanted to mime. I can. It's. Yeah. I'm quite good at it, but it's. Yeah. It was never my interest, and I feel like, it's. It's a reason why I wouldn't do Drag Race. You yeah. know, yeah. like because if I'm lip syncing for my life, who cares? Like, I mean, that's not what I do. So I would never do that show for yeah. literally that reason. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, I, I was a. I was a younger man then. When you, were, uh, you were when you were performing at the Imperial in those shows, etc., and I have this beautiful, long-lasting vision of you getting from venue to venue on a little scooter. Yeah, <laughs> full drag and all your Vespa. drag back. I had a Vespa. <laughs> I'd ride in full face, and I had my my helmet wig, and it was just like sort of bits of hair that came out the bottom of the helmet. So I'd get on the scooter and ride between. As on Thursdays, I used to do Yippee I Go on Crown Street, the shift, and then the Imperial, and that was a Thursday night journey. Journey. And then Fridays I'd be at the Newtown and then the Imperials. So it'd be jump on the scooter and get down between. But I I really wasn't and Courtney Actors Courtney there's a, a removed chapter from Courtney Act's book um, <laughs> where she criticizes me terribly for being always being drunk and getting on my scooter and driving home. And it, she's right. And but there were, yeah. I was terrible. But I was always like, oh, the wind in my face sobers me up. I'll be right. I'll get home. <laughs> Never fell off. I did only... I did fall off once in the rain. Trev, you're known for a, a range of diverse entertainments, cabaret, <laughs> pantomime, risque, yes. uh, musical theatre, drag, all of which have a commonality of camp. How do you define camp? Oh, God. I don't know. What is camp? Oh, for me, I mean, you are camp. I mean, I am camp. Yes, that's the thing. <laughs> I feel like it's always been within me that there's been nothing that's not camp. Uh, I don't know how I would define it. I mean, I, I think I just know that it's there. I went to that fantastic um, exhibition a few years ago at the Met uh, and the year that they did the Met, Met Gala was notes on camp and you had to dress camp. And some of them got it and some of them really didn't. And it was quite an amazing. And there's a great, there's a great book that they brought out from the Metropolitan Museum. And it's incredible, all bits from Oscar Wilde and bits from, you know, and, and, and an outfit by Cher and, and Dame Edna and, you know, all these things that all become, I guess, the campness. And I don't know, for me it's... I, I don't know. Well, drags camp, I, I guess, and it's, a, it's an and most out, outrageousness. Those, but most it? of those women that I love are very camp. Yeah, yeah, like yeah. I mean, Bette Midler's camp is Christmas. Yeah, yeah. But without being a gay man, so it's it's and, quite. And uh, Shirley Bassey oh, is not camp. intentionally camp, but no, she's very. Camp. But she is very camp. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> but I love that, and I I don't know. I don't know how I'd define it. I think only because it's been always so innately within me, or maybe it's just the things that I was attracted to were always. Fairly camp things, the Golden Girls, and yeah. you know, and Liza Minnelli. You know, it's like those sort of things are very camp. Camp. Judy Garland. Camp. You know, camp. Yeah. <laughs> um, your pantos, of course. Yes. Uh, you put pantomime season back to Sydney, um, and certainly they are very camp. They're also very ripe. 
um, yes. with with themes and language <laughs> and uh, can offend quite easily. Yeah. Um, but they're so much fun. They're yeah. so much fun. Uh, do you set out to offend people? Do you get a thrill from that or...? To mildly, mildly, just enough that they that there's a shock factor. I like a shock factor. I don't like it to be completely... I don't want you to know completely what you're going to get. I prefer that I at least... that there's one thing that at least that, that you don't think... or that I overstepped the mark and that I know that I've overstepped the mark. It's, oh, I, I, I was watching the new Ricky Gervais special the yes, other day. Yes, Supernature. Which, I mean, to me that is absolutely brilliant. That is yes. exactly what I like. Yes. To do and and what he how he does it is so good because as he says in the in the special it's actually irony, and it is actually proper satire if you are sort of holding the mirror up because some of these jokes wouldn't be funny if you even though they're offensively funny they wouldn't be as funny if it wasn't true so even though you shouldn't necessarily say it. And, look, there's some that I probably... I could probably never do Little Orphan Trashly again. Uh, it was probably right at the end of when you could make any jokes in that part. Um, Fat Swan I could do again because it sort of was less... <laughs> I love that show. Um, uh, but this year I'm doing Moulin Scrooge. <laughs> And so <laughs> I play an old hooker called Saton um, <laughs> who gets visited by clients past, present and emerging. So it's going to be, you know. See, there you go already. There you go again already, yeah. I know, yeah. all in the title. But, um, but I think it's, it, but that one's the new one. But, again, it's hard to revisit them because they are very much of the... Of the time. Of the of time. The, and I yeah. think, too, I do push the envelope so much much that uh, certainly uh, people's sensibilities change and what is fine five years ago may not be fine now. And I think I certainly recognise that. And it is funny to look back at a couple of those things and think, oh, God, I could never do that one today, could I? Um, but it's good, you know. They, were, they, they did what they were supposed to do at the time and, and I love writing them. It's so much fun. Phil Scott and I write them together and we sit around completely roaring our heads off because Phil just tries to offend me and that's really hard. So the jokes are, you know, there are several that I go, that's, that can never be heard, Phil. That's never being said, and you know, but it's, it's great. We have a lot of fun and we have such a good, um, we have such a great relationship and we've worked together now on shows since Pop Princess, which was one of my first... Um, cabarets, and that, I was 23 then. Right. And so, yeah, so it's been almost 20 years now. Right, Phil right. and I have written together. Have you ever crossed the line and, and regretted a joke that you've, uh, that you've played? No. No? No. No, well, that, I think I have on purpose. I've done it on purpose. If I've done it, I do it on purpose. Yeah, yeah. I always know that I'm going to get myself in trouble yeah. if I say one particular thing or, you know, if yeah. that line I know is going to offend. Um, I will say... There was a night of Fat Swan we were doing. It was an industry night. I thought, I'll change a few of the jokes and not tell the cast. Um, and there was an agent named Penny Williams who had died uh, about two days earlier. Right. And in the show I had to call my agent. And so I picked up, pulled my phone and I said, oh, great, I got the job. Hi, is Penny Williams there? 
She's what? I will no wonder I'm not getting any fucking work. And, <laughs> and the audience are like, oh, too soon. Too soon. Too soon. I know it wasn't too soon, but it was funny. But then again, I mean, that was a very tragic event that we lost Penn, who was mm. a, a, a dear soul. Um, but in providing that joke, I, I suppose it allowed for some sort of catharsis or yeah. a release <laughs> from people who. She were, would have loved that and joke. And she would have she loved would have it herself. herself. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Um, you must also have to have an immense awareness of popular culture because you reference... I mean, Lion Queen, for example, there was everything from uh, Home and Away to uh, Jurassic Park yeah. in that. You've got to be around those stories, those narratives. Mm, I, I don't know. I've always had a fascination with with popular things and, uh, and it, it was really interesting doing Lion Queen in December because uh, there were some audiences that literally would get every joke and others that wouldn't, they wouldn't know my, you know, Ada Nicodemu joke, which I thought was hilarious. But, you know, it, it, I guess I, but then Angela Bishop was in the audience one night and she got everything, like just she knew everything. But again, that's her job. So I guess, I, I don't know, I, I've always loved knowing and, and seeing everything I try and, see as much as I can and, and, and know what people are talking about and read the gossip bags and right. do all of that. Mm. Have you always been a good mimic? I didn't realise I could do it until sort of... I started doing some... Uh, what am I, Eliza? Liza. Oh, Liza. <laughs> um, uh, I was going to singing lessons with Kerry Bedell and uh, for those of you, she was a legendary jazz singer. And Kerry was this incredible singing teacher. And she basically taught me how to manipulate my voice. Uh, a lot of what she said that was stuck in my voice was this musical theatre training or I sounded always like very Broadway sound. And she was trying to knock that out of me to, to get me to sing jazz and to get me to sing different things because I really wanted to be able to sing different things. And so she sort of taught me all these qualities and she'd say, listen to this person, what do they do and how, did, how does that fall off work and how, does their, how fast is their vibrato, um, how do they start notes, um, what's the accent that they have, how, what's their use of vowels. So I tended... So I started listening to a lot of that stuff and started to realise that I could manipulate my voice and then I could listen to Shirley Bassey and go, oh, well, that's... Oh, she does this and this and this. And so then I could just do it because I could pick apart her vocal technique. And so as I sort of learnt that, I, I was able to develop sort of shows... Um, and I guess the first one that was big was Liza on a knee. And, um, and I did that. I mean, that show went around the world twice. Like, I got to play the West End yeah. um, for a week. I was at my own theatre on the West End with my face on the hoardings. It was absolutely unbelievable. Yeah. Um, and New York, it's played there. And, you know, Michael Feinstein's come to see me do it. Billy Stritch, her musical director, has come to see me do it. So I've that sort of was the first one. And then to get to do shows like I'm Every Woman where I got to do lots of different girls. And um, I did... I used to do several in the pubs too. So I'd do some Bassy and I'd do some Liza and I'd do some... Catherine Zeta-Jones, um, when I was thinner. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Is there anyone that's defeated you? Can't really do, Barbara. Right. 
<laughs> I play her in a movie at the moment, but can't really do her. Um, I find uh, my friend Stephen Brinberg's the best Barbara in the world, and he's incredible. Um, I just, it's too feminine a sound. I, I have to pick my battles. I can't do Mariah Carey, you right. know, but I can do Cher because she sounds sort of deeper. Yeah. And the same with Bassie, I sing a lot of stuff in her key now. Her key now, not a key from when she was 20, but, you know, a win's a win. Yeah. So, <laughs> so I do. Can you, can you talk us through one of those women and, and how you inhabit them? Yeah, I look, a lot of it comes so naturally to me. And just because I was so obsessed with them all, to actually, you know, to actually think about how they are. And, and you know, obviously Liza has a terrible speech impediment of, of her lisp is so bad. Um, so she has that. She also sort of goes, she goes up. Get you that shot of show. And she does, she, she does. And then a lot of it's about getting her laugh right. She, she, she giggles, she does that giggle all the time. And so it's just sort of about, you know. I suppose it's finding those finding hooks. Finding those hooks, yeah. Yeah, and then, and then playing with them throughout, bringing them in. She, yeah. <laughs> she, she, <laughs> she does it. She just, <laughs> all the time. I love her. <laughs> you really? Is she aware of you and, and your Liza impersonation? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Has she seen you? Um, I don't know if she's seen me. Her publicist threatened to sue me. Oh. I met him once. I was in New York and I'd gone to see Barbara Streisand's sister do a cabaret show. So, my friend Richard directs Babs's concerts. So I went to see this, uh, this show and Barbara had rung him and said, do, do me a favour and, and look after my sister. You know, so then <laughs> she's gone and done, she's done this cabaret. He's directed her in this cabaret. And he said, isn't she like Barbara? I said, oh, my God, I didn't want to say it. But it's like she's like a carbon copy of, ba- of Babs. But she also w- refuses to sing anything that Barbara's ever sung, which doesn't leave a lot. Like, seriously, though, the woman has been around and sung every good song in the world. So she just kind of has a bit of a bad repertoire. But great voice. As good a singer as Barbara, I, w- I have to say. Anyway, after that, he said, do you want to... Her name's Rosalind Kind. And he said, we're going up for a drink at the pub next door. Do you want to come? And I said, oh, okay. So I walk in and I meet Rosie, as they say. Here, meet Rosie. So I met Rosie. And then um, I was introduced <coughs> to this girl named Lisa. And Lisa was Liza's personal assistant and her publicist, Scott. And he refused to shake my hand and he said... I know who you are and I don't like what you do. <laughs> so it was quite terrifying. Yeah. Shirley Bassey's seen me. Shirley's that seen was, you? That was exciting. Right. I got a message from her personal assistant and she was... Bassey had said she thought the title Diamonds Are For Trevor was the greatest thing she'd ever heard. <laughs> and, and she... Um, and she uh, literally just said I was wonderful and con- congratulations and yeah that's a feather in your cap that was nice that you're doing the right thing I know she was <laughs> almost going to come here at one point and I was going to be her support act wow I would have died I would have died yeah. I couldn't have done it it would have been too hard 
You would have but done it. But I would have loved it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> uh, do you mimic any male vocalists? No. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I could, I guess. I just don't really do it. It's right. just not um, in my wheelhouse, I guess. Right. I don't listen to a lot of male vocalists. Right. I think years and years I listen to him. I listen to Jamie Cullum a lot. That's about it. Elton, right. And that's kind of my male singers. That's it. It's really odd, isn't it? Yeah. I just have always listened to female voices. It's strange. Um, the film you alluded to in which mm. you play uh, a Barbara Streisand impersonator is Seriously Red, which is going to be the, the new hot thing uh, in cinemas. It's exciting. Yeah. Do, do you mind Barbara or are you...? No, I sing. You sing as Barbara. I do sing. I'm one of the few cast members whose real voice is being used for their... Character. Right, there you are at the red carpet on... Uh, oh, there I am at the red carpet. Yes, yeah. that's not what I wear in the movie. Um, uh, but, yeah, it was so fun. Oh, my gosh. And I hadn't, I hadn't seen anything because we... I'd gone in for ADR sessions doing just some little bits of vocal on lines that were dropped and stuff. Uh, but the sad thing is that I, I got to kiss Bobby Carnavale... You didn't. I did. I on got the mouth to kiss or on him. the cheek? Well, this is the thing. Right. So we did like ten takes of this scene and I got to kiss him on the lips for the first like six and then Bobby said, I think we should try it with her kissing my cheek now. And so I kissed him on the cheek and that's the one that's in the damn movie. I'm like, no, <laughs> give, me the re- give me the outtakes. Give me the outtakes. It was so good. It was so exciting. But he plays a Neil Diamond impersonator and I sit there going, you don't bring me flowers. Um, with my nails all over his face. It's very funny. Um, but it's a, uh, it was great. It was a lovely thing to be asked to do. So what's and it about? It's a, it's a new Australian film directed Australian by film Gra- Gracie Otto. By Gracie Otto. Yeah. And uh, the film's writer, Crew Boylan, uh, is the writer and, and star of it. And she's incredible. And she plays a, Barbara St- uh, a Dolly Parton impersonator. Well, a wannabe Dolly Parton impersonator. And she basically goes into this world of impersonators. And there's quite a brilliant concept is that... Uh, we all party together in a place called the Copy Club and we're all in character and all in costume all the time. And so we filmed this in um, Brunswick Heads at the Picture House uh, over about a week and there was just a million different extras all dressed as other celebrities. So it was so bizarre because it was like this guy who does... He does um, Elton John round the clubs, you know, who looks exactly like Elton. He's there being Elton. And then there's, you know, a woman being Liza. And then there's, you know, one of the ABBA tribute bands, one of the Kiss tribute bands. They were all there. So they'd hired all of these tribute bands and we were all together in this in this um, very hot, uh, it was boiling, no air conditioning, um, all dying in between takes. And uh, Rose Byrne plays an Elvis impersonator. And she's absolutely unrecognisable. It's quite extraordinary to see Rose done up as Elvis. But she wasn't there when I filmed it because she only could shoot for three days. So they shot all of her front bits, the movie magic, they shot all her front bits with like four extras and then they shot everything from behind with, you know, her double. So I did everything with her body double. It was hysterical. So I never met Rose but I got to kiss her husband. 
So that was good. That's all right. Yeah. The magic of the movies. The magic of the movies. But it's a beautiful film. Um, when it comes out, you must come and see it. It's, ve- it's camp. Um, <laughs> and Tim Chappell, who did the costumes for Priscilla, did the costumes. And they are amazing. And it's, I think, I don't want to jinx it, but I think it's going to be like, the new Muriel's Wedding, it's really that good. Right. And it's such a good story. And, of course, the soundtrack's incredible because Dolly Parton gifted all her songs. So all her songs are in the movie. So they do everything. Um, and I do Don't Rain on My Parade and Rose does Suspicious Minds as Elvis. and So it's like a fabulous soundtrack. It's really, wow. really fun. So you'll, you'll really enjoy it. We look forward it. to it. Ser- seriously read. Seriously read. Should be in cinemas in a few months. Right. Uh, and Priscilla, Queen of the Desert, you're going back on the bus. The I, dessert, yeah. I was going to say. Well, <laughs> <laughs> that was the Tilbury's name for it. was Pavlova, it, Queen of the Desert. Yes, it's Tony Sheldon's show, mm. yeah. Um, well, Tony Sheldon show, Priscilla as well. Yes. But you are returning uh, onto the bus uh, in uh, on the Gold Coast. On the Gold Coast. You're directing that. I am directing it, yeah. which is really fun to go back and do all the stuff that you kind of that I didn't like in our production to kind of go back and fix it and to change things and to be able to cast a very authentic cast. And I think that's what's exciting because uh, we have the first ever trans woman playing Bernadette in the show. So this will be the first time anywhere in the world that an actual trans woman's played this role. Um, which is really exciting. Plus then we have Carlotta in it as well. But Carol's not playing Bernadette. So Carol's actually playing the uh, mulleted transphobe. So um, it's going to be very funny to have her with the mullet wig and the um, and the bra and the and the undies. So it's going to be pretty exciting. And then just a really good cast. I'm excited to. Well, Vonnie, to Vonnie see. Britt, Vonnie Britt Watkins, mm-hmm. who uh, was a lay girl, wasn't she? She was a lay girl. Yeah. yeah so um, she did lay girls with Carol. She's about six years younger than Carol. Um, but, you know, it's going to be – it'll be very interesting. We have a 16-year-old boy in it who's in the ensemble and we have a 9-year-old, of course, to play the son um, and we have uh, a 79-year-old Carlotta. So it's going to be a very diverse age range of people and and especially because Carlotta's never done anything like this before, neither is Vonnie. Mm. So to actually be sort of in this sort of professional musical theatre – uh, situation and and to do vocal warm ups every day and be uh, being being sent they're they're doing Corey early Corey work with Vonnie at the moment because she's got so many numbers in the show so they're in there rehearsing but it's it's been exciting to to revisit it and to redesign it and come up with the ways of making it work for now because when you think about it, the next year the film will be uh, will be thirty. Really? Mm-hmm. Dear. So... Where did that time go? Where did that time go? Yeah. So 30 years next year is um, maybe something for Vivid. Um, <laughs> uh, but a Priscilla, um, yeah, the film film's that old. So, so to, to sort of bring... Uh, figure out which bits can be more outrageous, which bits need to be changed. It, it, it's been interesting to work yeah. on it. I'm loving it. You've got the lovely Stephen Tandy playing Bob the Builder too, haven't you? Yes, I do. Tom Sullivan. Remember Tom Sullivan? Yeah. Yes. Yes, so he's playing our Bob. 
yeah. which is exciting. He's yeah. so lovely. Um, and, and Paulini is one of the divas. Right. So she'll belt out all those disco tunes for us. It's basically the Young Divas album anyway. So, <laughs> yeah. so where and when can we see it? It's opening on the Gold Coast from July 16 until August 7. So go up for a long weekend. Great. Lots of people are. It's going to be fun. Uh, I'm going to be there for your first preview. You're coming for the preview. Yeah, yeah. <gasps> it'll be all right. I'm sure it'll be yeah, fine. It'll be great. It's Priscilla. It can't go bad. All right. I mean, it's going to be. It's great because you know we have all the original costumes. We hired them from uh, the show. So because I said we can't build these. I said have you got a couple of million? Because this is. It's outrageous expensive to make those. So someone will get to wear your cupcake costume. Someone will get to wear right. one of my cupcakes. I hope it's been laundered. So, well, we've got that. That's what the funniest <laughs> thing was, that they gave us the best of what they have left that hasn't disintegrated, basically, over all the years. Um, but they picked one up the other day and went, oh, Jason Donovan's tick costume and, oh, Tony Sheldon's Bernadette costume. And, oh, and it was like all these different people that have played them or sewn into the back. It's like, oh, there you go. I doubt anything of mine's left. So lot, but I mean, we did it yeah, terrifyingly that's... 16 years ago. Wow. So um, I was wow. just a wee slip of a thing. Right. Um, the musical A Chorus Line features the song What I Did for Love. Yeah. Yeah, which, which really sums up a dancer's life and what they have to sacrifice for their careers. What have you done for love? Probably given up love. Yeah. To yeah. To, 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 do to have this. that incredible focus on your career yeah, and developing it. Probably. Yeah. And I start to go, oh, I'm too old now. I just can't even think of being in a relationship or even living with somebody. It would be it's too, been too long. Too I set in your like. ways. I I think so. I think after living alone for the last going eighteen years, um, most of my adult life. Never say never. Stephen Sondheim found love at 70. Well, that's true. Yeah, yeah. That's true. So that's what I'm and hoping. he had a dungeon in the basement. I'm hoping. <laughs> 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 well, let's give it five years if we haven't found anyone. Okay. All right. I'll give it a try. Uh, what, me? No, not you. No, well, that's what I was talking about. <laughs> All right. Um, thank you for stepping in, Trev. It's, uh, it's always lovely to have a thank conversation you. with you. You're, you're vivacious, you're gregarious, um, uh, you're very social and full of wonderful anecdotes. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, would you please thank Trevor Ashley. Thank you.